Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. NBC Sports, Football Morning and American columnist Peter King. What do you think about the Chase Thomas podcast? I'd like to plug the Chase Thomas podcast. Listen to Chase Thomas. You'll be a smarter sports fan and obviously a much better human being. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Matlana, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I, hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, Everything School HQ. Also here, Rocky Top Insiders, Ryan Shumpert, no Ethan Stone this week, no Jack Foster, but they'll be back next week. Ryan, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, the, my my beloved Tennessee Titans got to fill the other side of... Uh, the uh, craziness of the NFL today and the unpredictability. So that picked me up after a uh, collapse from the Cubs this week and a equally, eh, yeah, I'll say equally poor performance from from my fellow countrymen over in uh, in Rome. That was not a not a good weekend uh, for those guys. But also the Falcons had a bye, so I got to just experience <laughs> <clears throat> a fun weekend of Tennessee football and Tennessee football only. Uh, Ryan Shumper, but uh, I am just glad uh, for the good folks um, who follow uh, the show on Instagram and everywhere else. You saw that uh, I was at 
the at the game first one in the building this fall because it's just different circumstances haven't been able to get in there um this year so glad i was able to to be in there my dad and it was we were up close we got to see a grown south carolina man uh try and fight uh, a couple tennessee kids and really shout at them a lot of obscenities and get calmed down uh because the college kids were trolling the lone south carolina fan in the area it was it was just exactly what you wanted Neyland Stadium to be. Um, Experience-wise, I had an older woman uh, shouting, Get him! Get him! Get him! in my ear. And uh, that thankfully stopped because I like turned around with like my eardrum about to burst uh, at one point. And, you know, it's not necessary because I'm a quiet watcher. Uh, and my dad, too, we were just... Uh, Taking it all in, dark mode. It was a it was a great time, uh, by and large. But uh, yeah, there you never know what you're going to see when you go into to Neyland Stadium under the lights. But it was a it was a ten out of ten showing, Ryan Shepard, on the uh, in amongst the fan base. You were you're in your little uh, uh, glass barrier, and I'm over here with yeah. the people, sir. And it was uh, it was an experience. I can't remember the exact details of it, uh, but my brother. His girlfriend is from California. She went to the Florida game last year. It was her first SEC football game ever. And again, I can't remember all the context of the story, but someone threatened the curb stopper. And I was like, this is sitting in the south end zone of Neyland Stadium for a big football game. Like this, that's probably the perfect, uh, perfect experience for you to have in your first uh, SEC football game. Well, that was the funny thing, too, because he was, like, asking the kid to, we'll go outside. He kept doing, like, the, the rock, like, <laughs> come here. And it's like, Sir, A, it's a child. Uh, B, how do you think this is going to go for you? You're in a sea of Tennessee fans. They're not just going to let you go down <laughs> and attack this college kid. It's not going to happen here. Um, you're going to lose this battle. Like, what do you what do you mean step outside? You're still going to lose. Like, you're just what are you doing? Like, it was some people, man. I just I genuinely uh, I can't understand it, um, but. It's good entertainment. It's good sidebar when you're in a three minute TV timeout and you don't know. But also, yeah. if you're if you're a visiting fan coming into a heart, like know what you're signing up for. Like that's just part of the deal. If you don't think you have the thickest skin to handle it, you probably shouldn't go. Like you just have to. It comes with the territory. Yeah, I mean that was. I think I joked this to you before, maybe last show when I went to the the Cubs Braves game on Tuesday night, whatever game it was that say Suzuki dropped. Uh, Dropped the game uh, literally and figuratively. And as I said, the biggest win I had was I just wasn't being rude as an mm. away fan when the Cubs were building their 6-0 lead. So I was, you know, relatively unscathed from the, the nasty, awful, terrible, despicable Atlanta Braves fans. Maybe next year, Ryan Shepard. I mean, it's probably nice, though, to feel like you're kind of reverted back to the lovable loser cubbies right like it's kind of a, a happier place to be in uh and the world series feels farther and farther removed from your from your consciousness as a fan and you get to get back to what made the cubbies special which was never winning well this is a uh, you know at the beginning of the season when i said the possibility of the cubs playing meaningful games in september everybody laughed at me so i'm not sure mm -hmm. we're necessarily taking a step in that direction uh certainly classic cub stuff though uh, mm. but you know maybe that's a that's another podcast for you and one i'm i may be too emotional to talk about it's okay ryan time heals all wounds and here's I, I just i was thinking about like how we could organize this particular show because i had so many competing 
thoughts about this one. Tennessee ultimately gets the dub over the South Carolina Gamecocks. We talked last week about how important this game was for both teams um, coming in, and you felt that way. Like uh, some might have said that this was Tennessee's Super Bowl. Um, I don't know who that might have been, but uh, this was Tennessee's Super Bowl this year. Um, and I'm glad to say that uh, the Tennessee Volunteers are Super Bowl champs uh, based on certain comments. So shout out to Josh Heupel getting his first uh, Super Bowl here at uh, the University of Tennessee. But um, 24 hours after Ryan Shepard, the biggest takeaway you're still thinking about from the Vols South Carolina beatdown dark mode special is what, sir? How dominant Tennessee was uh, on both lines of scrimmage. We've talked about it uh, for it feels like weeks now that uh, with Tennessee's struggles on the offensive line and how much they've rotated that it was like get Cooper Mays back and play five guys and mm. it was the five they ended up rolling with Jeremiah Crawford wasn't inactive for the game but it didn't sound like he was healthy enough to give it a go which meant Gerald Minsky got all the snaps the right tackle something we had indicated should happen and then obviously Cooper Mays comes back played really well uh, that proved to be super important for Tennessee's offensive line and Andres Carrick. Uh, was out too, which forced him to play Ollie Lane exclusively uh, at left guard. So that uh, on that side of the ball and then defensively, look, South Carolina's, we knew Tennessee had an advantage there. We knew Tennessee had to win on the defensive line of scrimmage. If they were going to beat South Carolina and certainly in the fashion that they did, uh, but it was really, really dominant. And, you know, you look at the PFF numbers today, that was the worst South Carolina has pass blocked in any game this year, significantly worse than they did against Georgia and even worse. Uh, than they did against North Carolina when Rattler was sacked nine times. It, Rattler was not comfortable really at any point in the entire game. He never had a clean pocket to throw. He was having to improvise and create uh, a lot of stuff to happen on the run. And then outside of one uh, 75-yard touchdown run, Tennessee fit everything really well in the run game too. I, you know, I think in multiple times, first half, uh, South Carolina's got it third and short kind of in border, you know, four down territory. They run it on third down. Can't pick up a yard running in on Tennessee's defense. They throw it, don't get it on fourth down. And then obviously that sequence in the third quarter where they ran it on third and one, didn't get it, went quarterback sneak fourth and goal or fourth and inches, didn't get it. And it was just nothing came easy for South Carolina's offense. And that was totally because of Tennessee's defensive line's domination. What was more impressive to you, Tennessee's offensive line domination or the defensive line's domination? That's a good question. Probably the defensive line's domination. Mm. But the same, I think it was maybe more impressive because of just how crazy it was. But I almost think maybe you'd go the other way with how, with the surprising factor. You know, what was more surprising? I might even say the offense because you don't expect Cooper Mays to be so good. And it was, you know, more than just running for 238 yards. The pass protection was really good. Joe takes one sack and it was, you know, a coverage sack when he sat in the pocket too long on. Um, and then, you could, you know, there was obviously a case to be made. You talk about South Carolina starting a true freshman at left tackle who's outmatched by James Pierce. And, you know, James Pierce, who had another fantastic game, just overwhelmed South Carolina physically. So maybe that we should have seen coming a little bit more. But when you just talk about how dominant Tennessee's defense line was, and it just didn't feel kind of like I said earlier, it didn't feel like Rattler had a clean pocket the entire game. Uh, I think they ran the ball. Like I said, you take away that one. 75-yard touchdown, like 27 yards on something like 20 carries. So it was just completely dominant on that side. Yeah, I mean, before the year, James Pierce was uh, my guy, as you know, um, here on this show. Big James Pierce guy coming in. And um, what I, I think for me, 
interesting and like my dad and i just watched him over and over again it's just i mean like you said he was just eating the left tackle a lot but he was just causing so many different things like some of like you can't just look at the two sacks it he yeah. caused he wrecked so much havoc just every single snap he was on the field for and like the pick doesn't happen for kamal haddon without uh james pierce getting there at spencer rattler he just he was in spencer rattler's head and it was just you had to be wary of where james pierce was at all times on the field and tennessee has not had a defensive end with the upside that james pierce has had since what Derek barnett like is he the the best they've had since then and tyler barron also had a great game in this one so i think that combination has been huge because Tyree West didn't get a lot of snaps in this one. Omar Norman Lott was someone else who flashed. Um, I don't know if you saw. He was wrecking yep. havoc in the middle of the defensive line. I thought Elijah Simmons' snaps were good um, in the middle. He was he was good in uh, stuff up the middle. So I think by and large the defensive line stood out. But James Pierce, I think we've we're entering a new era with uh, with Pierce and company because I don't think this is going anywhere. I think he's getting more and more confident as the weeks go on. And I don't think you really, the thing that it's like, you don't, you can't scheme James Pierce out of these games. Like he was getting doubled uh, in the second half. And it's just, that helps so much when James Pierce able to get home because they didn't have to blitz. Like that was the other part of it is because Pierce and Barron were causing and Omar Norman Lott were causing so much havoc. Tennessee was able to stay back and keep their guys back because when they brought everyone up close to the line of scrimmage, they burst right through the middle and had a gigantic touchdown run by South Carolina where I looked at my dad and I was nervous. I was like, why is Jalen McCullough up so close? Why is Wesley? Wall? And then it just uh, running right to the middle and it was like 60 yard uh, touchdown run by South Carolina and really the only miscue by this Tennessee defense throughout the entire yep. evening. But and they rebounded well and that was it. They did not uh, let that kind of sink them like it did a year ago in Columbia, right? No, it didn't, and it, it, the second quarter is really where I point out because Tennessee's offense stalled out uh, in the second quarter. They got off to a good start. It felt like, and maybe this is wrong, maybe this you know has nothing to do with it, but it felt like the Brew McCoy injury kind of took a little shot of life out of Tennessee's offense in the second mm-hmm. quarter, and not only for Tennessee's defense to make it not hurt them and not give up points and maintain the seven-point lead, they you know obviously delivered the, the biggest play of the game uh, when Pierce – really made South Carolina pay for being aggressive on third and 22 backed up. They don't even have the running back in to help pass protect. And again, I don't even think he was going to sack Rattler, but he just gets back there so quick. And it makes, like you said, he was in Rattler's head. Rattler had to know where he was at all times. He's a little uncomfortable. Air mails that throw. And obviously Kamal had an ultimate uh, twist of irony or full circle moment for Tennessee's defense from last year's game at South Carolina to this year's game uh, struts in the end zone. And, you know, it, it talked about that fourth down uh, when South Carolina was driving and didn't get it on fourth and inches. Like, you know, you felt like at that point South Carolina was moving it. They could maybe make it a game, but really it never at pick six was it – did it feel like Tennessee was going to lose. Uh, they – I don't think South Carolina – yeah, South Carolina never got the, got the game back to one possession after that. I just – there were so many big moments, but for you, what was the biggest moment? Was it that? Was it Shane Beamer's decision to try and make something happen deep in uh, South Carolina territory? What was the biggest moment for you last night? It was the pick six. Uh, mm. To me, pick six is number one. I would almost combo that, too, with how – what Tennessee's defense turned around and did, right, again, because they get the unsportsmanlike conduct on the return – kick the ball out of bounds and it's all of a sudden one minute 50 yard line like 
I know I thought South Carolina was probably going to get a field goal attempt off at, at the very least. And, and that's a very easy moment to have your guard down a little bit, to not be super dialed in. South Carolina gets eight yards in the first play. But again, it's just what happened all night. Anytime South Carolina had any semblance of offensive success, uh, they just had to have big plays to have to do anything offensively because they could not sustain drives because they couldn't block Tennessee up front. They get the sack on second down, uh, incomplete pass on third down in South Carolina. Punts. I would say the other moment would be the long pass to Squirrel White. Uh, Joe Milton had thrown the terrible interception uh, the drive before Tennessee is losing for the what would be the only time in the game down 10-7. And then it was just boom, 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 just like that. Four-play touchdown drive, and they were back ahead. And uh, obviously a good throw by Joe and then just a fantastic catch by Squirrel. Yeah, um, and we'll get into more of the Joe stuff here in a little bit. But I... I think there were like the pick six, I think would probably be it for me too. Um, in that regard, what do you think was the most important series slash drive in this game for Tennessee? Offensively mm-hmm. or defensively, depending on which one you think was more impactful to the way the game ended up going. That's a good question. Um, you know, I think it's, Maybe silly to say this because South Carolina scored a touchdown in the next play, but I just felt Tennessee coming out having another strong drive to open the second half and doing the way they did it too. Ten runs on mm-hmm. twelve plays, and one of them was a Milton scramble, but it, it was just obvious situations. They were going to line the ball, they were going to line it up and run it right to South Carolina, and South Carolina didn't have an answer. And it just felt like that, even with the seventy-five yard touchdown, stimmied uh, any thoughts that South Carolina was really going to make it a game to get it to twenty-one points and. Yeah, uh, you know, if I would go on the other side, I would say the drive two drives later because Mario Anderson has a 75 yard touchdown. Tennessee goes three and out. South Carolina gets across midfield. You know, not that you're panicking or anything, but South Carolina certainly had the momentum at that point. And to be in third and one and to run the ball twice in a row and not be able to get it, uh, I think at that point, it, you know, it, it didn't feel like South Carolina was going to win at that point, but it didn't even feel after the stop like South Carolina was going to build a mount much of a comeback either. No, and I mean, that whole series for me when um, when I think the fourth down stop was huge. And I don't remember which series that was on fourth and one. Um, it was on the fake fake punt. Uh, yeah. It started in the first quarter, went into early second quarter. Um, I guess it would have been 14 to 10 at that point. That was huge. Um, I yeah. thought that was... That was a big moment. I also think when Spencer was backed up on our side, where he narr- like where the first play, uh, where Tennessee pins him up. I think that was after the Joe. And I turned to my dad. I'm like, the one, was. the one positive was Joe threw the pick like right at the one yard line. So they were backed up. So it was kind of a punt. It was a great punt, basically from Joe. And it was a great punt from, from field goal range. That was that's true. That was the one spin zone on it. That was funny. Funny story behind uh, from up mm. in our ice ice cube box up there. Mm. somebody i would imagine joey halsley but somebody in the tennessee coaches box was loudly very upset after that joe intercepted mm. but Bang you can't in, tell who it was in, i mean no, i couldn't tell who it was we're a couple things removed from them but very loud uh you know you'd imagine it's the quarterback coach and offensive coordinator in that situation but you know who, who knows for sure yeah and i it's just so funny how we talk about it right where I mean, we can. Uh, I'll I'll save the Joe stuff because I have a multitude of things here, and we'll we'll get to Joe. Um, but I also think I I don't know what the explanation was. Do you think he was out because Spencer was? He danced and the left foot was in front, but the right leg is in the back of the end zone. Like I don't know how it wasn't a Dan Orlovsky situation, but 
um, that was, I mean, we were loud and it was the loudest it's been in the three years I've lived here um, and gone locally as much as I have. It's just, they were in his ear. I think you could just tell Rattler was, for lack of a better term, rattled in that whole series where he, it took a second effort and a great second effort from the running back yeah. um, to get out of the safety because we all thought that was a safety. And then that would have ended the game, really, because you get two points and the ball back where Tennessee is just in real big position um, to do something. And then I think after they punt, the D. Williams punt return was the one that, that was, got called I back. That was after the that. moment of the game. Personally, yes. the D. Williams punt return. I thought that was the loudest Neyland I mean, was before. I guess everybody saw the flag. Well, the cool thing, too, when you have a punt return and when you're in the building for it and you're close, is you can see, like, you can't see it on the broadcast. You can see it when you're um, in one of the end zones, like how the seas yeah. open. And we yeah. all saw how the seas open where it's like, oh, D's taking it to the house. Like, you can just see there's there's no path for South Carolina to solve this. This is, uh, he's taking the six. I saw it at uh, Bearden, um, Bearden Maryville on friday night where beard had a gigantic punt return and i was in the end zone and i just saw him like oh he's gone like it's just one of those where you just don't have the bodies like it's just once you get out of structure in some of these returns you're just kind of you're kind of sol it also backs up my long live theory that the best way to return a punt for a touchdown is to buff it yeah it it just happens every time everybody know they're in almost always in those situations it's a really long punt where mm. you're kind of trying to awkwardly catching it and everybody just loses their gap containment to try mm. to, or lane containment, I guess in this case, to try to go run and get the ball that they're not close to. It happened in the, the A&M game too, uh, with the nice yeah. Smith yesterday uh, against Arkansas. Exact same thing. Drop the punt, returns it for a touchdown. It's, it's a tell as old as time. I love this take. I hadn't considered it. This is, you need to workshop this. You need to do, this is an off season assignment for you, Ryan, pull the coaches, talk to d about it like maybe get mike eckler in the building on this one like hey have you thought about yeah. maybe training d to muff every punt <laughs> i mean it's it's the ultimate risk reward moment um but i mean again like a lot of them when the punch just boomed it's the same thing that happened where that in that case south carolina had to max protect um out mm. of their own end zone so they just didn't have any gunners going down and then in the a&m case it was a bomb punt out the coverage but it's just like frequently if no one's close to you like it kind of like the risk goes way down and the reward goes well well up absolutely um what you thought coming into the game that did not end up coming to fruition was what for you ryan xavier Leggett having mm. what was it besides his the fake punt you know from spencer rattler uh he had to to run the numbers here four catches for 18 yards I just I saw no scenario where that was possible to happen. And as obviously life is made much easier on them by the defensive line, that probably deserves more credit. But I thought the secondary matched things up well. Uh, they To me, it felt like they played a lot more man-to-man. I don't know what you thought, especially on downs. Mm-hmm. Um, and South Carolina, like, think of multiple examples where uh, they went to mesh on, like, third and intermediate opportunities. Or I think one of maybe the fourth down was a, a similar try to quick hitter into the flat where those were the same things Florida ran against Tennessee and Tennessee was just in soft coverage and they got killed on and Tennessee matched them up and it really set the tone well from the first the first drive of the game. Uh, Gabe Judy Lolly uh, on meshes tackles the I can't remember what South Carolina receiver caught it, but for you know a gain of a yard on third and six and they punt it just felt like Tennessee's secondary matched things up really really well and. Obviously, like I said, huge assist from the pass rush, but 
I got to see the pass rush being dominant uh, as good as Tennessee's coverage was along with it. That's that's where the surprise came for me. I like it. Um, I think for me, the biggest surprise was that South Carolina, their defense knew coming in how this game was going to be attacked by Tennessee. And I was surprised that Jalen especially was able to dominate. Like he ever did, I think, 7.7 yards per carry. He had the big run early. Um, it was just kind of one of those where it's like an open secret. This is what you've been on this since the beginning of the year, Ryan. It's just that like they are going to run to set up the pass. Like this is a run first operation. And this is an operation where like Joe couldn't even run. Like there was not one designed Joe run from uh, probably what happened uh, last week with his knee. You just kind of knew what Tennessee was going to do. And they like no Dante Thornton. Um, you just there was no real speed no feel no real verticality questions uh, with this Tennessee team and they just couldn't do anything with it like it was just kind of one of the most interesting matchups to me where I thought coming in where Tennessee would have to take vertical shots that Tennessee would have to uh, kind of go back and forth in that regard to keep up with South Carolina because I thought coming in like that's what they're taking away that you are going to have to beat us over the top because we know you don't have the the guys outside you don't trust Joe in that way and your offense, your offensive line hasn't proven that they can uh, live in those kind of long mass protection uh, type deals. So I just I was surprised and impressed that the three headed monster for Tennessee in the backfield was able to do what they were able to do. I mean, Cooper Mays and Javante Spragans, it felt like Tennessee had half a dozen chunk plays in the run game running right behind mm -hmm. them or on. One play, quick plays where they pull, and there were just massive, massive lanes. Both those guys were super, super good. Spragans, who I would say is probably his best offensive lineman, certainly isn't the most important playing uh, right guard, but he, he's just nasty in the run game. And that was really, really evident. And you're right. It was – everybody knew what Tennessee wanted to do. And I, you think you give Josh Heibel credit however you want to look at it again. I thought he got a little too pass-happy in the second quarter, but they did enough early in the game and in the first half to kind of keep it balanced. I mean, what they ended up being one yard off and passing yards and offense yards. You want to talk about balance. Um, and then again, obviously they ran it down their throat in, in the third quarter, fourth quarter, South Carolina kicks that field goal to get it to what 14 points with, I can't remember how much eight minutes left. Everybody in everybody in Elon stadium thinks Tennessee is going to run the ball and they go with two quick passes that they scheme open to get 10 yards and gets Tennessee to midfield. And immediately they were able to run more clock in, in kind of a four-minute offensive situation. And then I think they ended up hitting one more quick pass to Jacob Warren on an RPO for about 10 yards on that drive too. Uh, but uh, at that point, leaned on the run game. And I felt like they kind of kept South Carolina off balance to – they kept South Carolina off balance in a game where they were very, very dependent on moving the ball and the run, which I think when – I talk about and when we talk about how Josh Heifel and Joey Halsey are going to scheme around Tennessee's deficiencies offensively and their struggle throwing it in the intermediate. That's kind of exactly what you saw them do, uh, especially in that second half against South Carolina. Absolutely. Um, bigger impact for you, Cooper Mays at center or James Pierce at Leo last night? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I'll guess if we're talking just last night, uh, I'm going to say Cooper Mays um, just because Tennessee's offensive line looks so much different than mm. 
what we've seen. And obviously, Gerald Mincy played more. And again, we've been up front with our thoughts that he needs to be a starting right tackle. And I'm sure that that helped too. But it's hard to deny what a huge impact Cooper Mays had on things. And whereas as dominant as James Pierce was, and he was Tennessee's best defense lineman, I thought uh, they still had a lot of guys that were getting pressure. If you took James Pierce, if he rolled his ankle on the first play of the game and couldn't come back in, Tennessee maybe pass rush isn't as good. They're still consistently affecting Spencer Rattler in this one. In the long term, like you're saying, all right, James Pierce or Cooper Mays, who would it be worse for Tennessee to lose? I think that becomes a lot harder to bait. Um, but, but last night, I wouldn't say Cooper Mays had a bigger impact. I think so, too, just because you saw like Tyler Barron had a really good game, and this one, Omar Norman Lott had a really good game. I think Tennessee's defense as a whole just played really well, and they had a really good game plan. So I think they probably still would have won the game uh, if James Pierce was just average. Um, but... Cooper, you just see everything was different. Like the tempo we didn't see is a different thing, but I wonder if that's just like part of what Hypel wants to do this year. I think he might have be adjusting a little bit. Is like tempo, I mean, not getting him to sub is important, but in terms of just the Hendon Hooker go go go, I just I don't think even Cooper is going to change that because part of it is they want to run the ball down your throats and they kind of want to uh limit the opportunities uh for Joe to do stuff uh through the air. So I I think Cooper, it hurts if you're a Tennessee fan because you're the what if game in Florida now is like if you have Mincy starting at right tackle and you have Cooper for that game, like how different does that look? Because that's where I think Cooper shows up even more is on the road when you're with when it's loud, when you have the ball, when you have a vet like Cooper who can calm the offensive line, get everybody on the same page, make sure all the keys are good. I just I. It's going to be a what if for forever, but I think in ter- going forward, I was also just kind of surprised that Cooper played as many snaps as he did because I think he played like 64 snaps. Yeah. They didn't rotate. Played all but five, five or six, I think, yeah. at the end of the game. Dane Davis got in, but besides that, he, he was every snap basically. So shout out to Cooper Mace because they need to put him in bowler up over the next two weeks, get him ready to go for AM because uh, those defensive line, uh, defensive linemen, uh, it's going to be a lot. So a much bigger test, I think, for Tennessee in two weeks. Definitely. Yeah, I don't think that's – I'm sure we'll talk more about it next week, but I don't think that's a great matchup for Tennessee uh, when you Mm -hmm. just look at the personnel standpoint. So, Josh Heibel, as we've talked about a lot on this uh, program, fantastic coming off by weeks, always has a great offensive game plan, and I think he's going to have his work cut out out for him a little bit in this one. This is not to get a little creative. Uh, Not going to be able to run the ball for, for 250 in this one, I don't think. No, and that kind of leads us to the question of trending up or down Joe Milton because next week or two weeks from now, you're going up against a rough secondary with AM, but a very good front seven uh, with the Aggies. That if we talk about the surprise where Joe and this team didn't have to attack vertically, they didn't have to put a lot of pressure through the air uh, to get score 41 points here on Saturday. That has that's going to be a completely different scenario, I think, um, in two weeks against AM. And they're going to, I don't see them being able to play the same kind of style that they played Saturday and come away with a comfortable victory against AM. but before we even get to that trending up or down for you joe milton after last night down is definitely the answer i don't think you know when you talk about like a trending standpoint not much like i just think that was his worst game he's played this season i don't know if it necessarily mm. changes a ton of what i i mean to me joe milton is what he is at this point you know he's got his limitations you need him not to have overs. Like, you're not going to be able to win. It's going to be a lot harder for you to win close games against better teams and on the road when the margins are smaller. Um, 
but just because he threw those two interceptions last night doesn't make me think all of a sudden he has a big turnover problem. Um, but no, I did not think he played very well last night. Interception in the first half was pretty terrible. Uh, the interception in the second half was a bad throw too. Like we kind of talked about, it didn't really cost Tennessee because you pin South Carolina at the two yard line on it, um, and you end up getting the ball back and kicking the field goal that you would have otherwise. Um, but you know, again, he had plenty of time. The offensive protection was not a problem at all. He was inaccurate on a couple of throws over the middle. McCollin Castles on a third down stands out. You still continue to see Tennessee really struggle on third and longs. Um, you know, obviously, so it makes it so brutal because, you know, Chaz Nimrod in the third quarter, I think, drops one on third down, and it was like third and ten, you had good protection, and Joe stepped up and delivered a good throw in the intermediate. Like, that's not that's hard for Tennessee to get those two things. And for him to drop it, it felt like kind of a missed opportunity. But that just, again, shows how – Slim uh, the margin for error is uh, for Tennessee in the passing game. But, again, we kind of knew that before. Um, but, I, like I said, probably just rambling at this point. I, I thought that was Joe's worst performance of the season. I think so, too. You feel bad because he was – I mean, he talked about it after the game because he was crushed, um, as uh, so many guys were, and rightfully so, for the brew, the nasty brew injury that will uh, sideline him for the rest of his – uh, this season, and that was the last uh, we'll see likely of Brew um, in a Tennessee uniform, and you just you hate to see it uh, finish like that. But I think here's what I, I struggle with because you wake up and you're feeling different. Where you walk out and it's just Joe is not costing you games. That's that's something that matters because there are quarterbacks that like Tennessee is yeah. four and one. There are quarterbacks that just don't know the system, don't kind of self-destruct when things get rocky. Joe's not doing that. Joe's got a good handle on Tennessee's offense. He knows exactly what, in year three, what he needs to do to get this offense running. He doesn't have bad fumbles. He only had the one bad sack on uh, Saturday night. There are some positives to Joe. Clearly well-liked in the locker room, this, that, and the other. I think... It doesn't matter right now that Joe's trending down because Jalen Wright and Dylan Sampson are trending up so much. And Dylan Sampson's just getting more and more confident um, week in, week out. That's huge. When you have this two-headed monster and Jabari being kind of that third guy that you can throw in uh, to give those two guys a breather, that's a really good place to be in. When you're pushing for 300 yards every week on the ground, Joe doesn't have to be a great college quarterback. I was talking to my uh, father-in-law this afternoon where he, and this is something that some Tennessee fans seems to share is like, well, he's getting, be- Joe's getting better and more experience as the year goes on. We can see the problem is Joe Milton is a certain age. Like this is not a freshman or a sophomore working and getting better and uh, getting more acclimated to just college football as a whole. He's been in the system for three years. This is just what Joe is. And does that mean that Tennessee is in a lot of trouble if Joe's the guy the rest of the way? No, I think they'll be fine. I think this strikes me as a team that's probably looking at nine and three um, based on this win. This win was huge to get them to nine and three to me, where I'm not as worried about Mizzou as some fans are. I'm definitely not worried about at Kentucky as some fans are. And then you're just staring at Bama and Emmett home and Georgia at home. If you can get one win out of those two or those three, then I think you're nine and three is very, is the most realistic possibility. And then you're just like, hey, we got through this weird, awkward year between Hooker and Nico Iamaliava. 
we still got nine wins. We've got some recruiting momentum. We might end up with Jordan Seaton and Bennett Warren at opposite tackles uh, coming out of this weekend. That would be huge. You got Mike Matthews coming in. A lot of good, talented young receivers. Um, you're feeling good about what next year and the year after that is looking like anyway. We always saw this as a gap year and just kind of like get through, keep as much positive momentum as you can you can do see growth in the defense and that's what you're seeing like you see you're seeing the defensive line start popping with some of these young guys you're seeing um the linebackers jeremiah tlander yeah. was great last night and that's and something aaron that carter. flashed and aaron carter so that makes you feel good uh at what the linebacker situation is looking like next year so all of these are positives and you have to throw all this in when joe is still like he's a c-minus quarterback He's not a D. He's not an F. He's not a Garantano. It's not a JT Shroud situation. He's just not going to get much better. The deep shots aren't coming. And I think you just have to, you just have to change how you look at Tennessee and how you look at Joe and really stop thinking about the last two years. You have to just, you're not going to be happy with this Tennessee football season. If you keep Hendon Hooker in mind, if you keep the first two years of Josh Heupel's Tennessee offense in mind, the way to look at it is, that, hey, if the running back trio is running the ball really well, our pass rush is back, our offensive line's healthy, we're going to be in just about every game the rest of the way. And Joe's going to have some bad picks. Joe's going to have some issues downfield. He's going to have issues in the intermediate. And that's just how it's going to be. You lose Brew McCoy, I don't see how that gets any better um, with the passing game it's going to be i think i saw that they talked about like now is the time to i don't remember which coach you can tell me which one it was talking about like now it's a big time for nathan leacock caleb webb and Chaz Nimrod uh to step up i don't know who it was after the game who, who cited the three of them which i thought was interesting because nathan leacock we have not seen uh to this point so maybe he finds his way onto the field but caleb webb got a bunch of snaps uh for brew last night and Chaz Nimrod obviously had a bad drop uh with his first uh big target in a game here but we'll see how that goes i just i think that's where my head's at where he's just not going to get better he's going to have these problems deep he's going to have these problems in the intermediate but with the way tennessee is bullying folks and the way they are winning games like they did this saturday i think that can still get you to nine and three and that's where you ultimately wanted to be before the year anyway is that fair is that where you're at largely yeah it's kind of to a degree where I've been at with the offense for a while. Uh, mm. I think the defense, there were still a lot of questions just from, you know, four games, three games against nobody good. And they were really bad against Florida, at least in the first half against Florida. And again, that Florida game was so hard to judge long-term stuff for Tennessee because it was just over in a flash in the second quarter. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's pretty fair. And uh, to me, the thing that becomes interesting in the macro is yes, this year has been a transition year. We do that all along. Next year's kind of a transition year, too. Like they lose, Tennessee loses a lot of players, and they're going to, again, be starting a new quarterback. Now it is the quarterback of the future, and it's not just a, a one-year starter. At least Tennessee doesn't envision it being a one-year starter. Um, but it, it is kind of, again, going to be in a unique, odd spot again next year. But that's a, that's a conversation for another day, and I think your kind of overall assessment of, of where this team is at is accurate. And it's a good year to be like this if you're Tennessee because what we said all along, the SEC's down. You conference loses Anthony Richardson, Will Levis, Bryce Young, Stetson Bennett, you know, Hendon Hooker, that many good quarterbacks, the league's gonna become down. And that's exactly kind of what we've seen this year. 
I mean, look at what the East looks like right now. I mean, Beck played better, especially in the second half, but having Brock Bowers really helps um, with that yeah, cheat code. But like, Devin Leary's look bad. And like that Kentucky game was just all Ray Davis having an otherworldly Derrick Henry type game. And Graham Mertz obviously not playing well. And you look at AJ Swan, he's. Uh, and you just go around the SEC and. Like most teams are not happy with their quarterback play right now. It's not like uh, Tennessee is alone in that regard. And they're winning games. They're four and one, and uh, things are moving in the right direction. But I think you also have to be honest and stop tiptoeing around how we talk about Joe Milton in 2023, which is the it's just not coming. And you're just going to be miserable week in week out if you're like, hey, he could end up being the most important player in college football this year and stuff like that. Like that's those days are not coming. The 90 yard deep shots are not coming. And this is going to be a ground and pound team that takes a couple shots here and there. But I think that's just uh, the best way for Tennessee to win football games, which is ultimately the point of all of this is to win as many games as possible the best way you can. Um, how important is the bye week uh, for the balls to come now for you, Mac, or for you, Mac Green, for you, Ryan Shepard? It's big. Um, you know, Josh Arkel said as much after the game that it's coming to a good spot there. Really banged up right now. Um, not as much key starters, but a lot of guys that are just in the two deep and in the rotation. And they definitely have a whole lot depth right now, a whole lot less depth right now than they'd like. So I think from that standpoint, it's big. But just in an even bigger standpoint, I think it's huge that you get it before a massive game that against what the sec- second, third best defense Tennessee's going to see this year. I mean, maybe it's the third best defense, but. Uh, this defense is closer to me. This Texas A&M defense is closer to uh, Georgia and Alabama than it is to Florida or Kentucky or anybody else on the schedule. So uh, it's, Tennessee needs it from that standpoint. And again, it, it goes the opposite way too in the sense that A&M has played back-to-back SEC games and they have uh, another big one Saturday night against Alabama. Speaking of Alabama, I want to pick your brain early here. Your early thoughts. Do you feel better about A&M or Alabama is the more likely win? Because I don't think they get both, but I do think Tennessee gets one of the two is the way I lean right now. Um, what do you, do you feel differently? Where, where do you see that? Because that's another one, an, an inflection point for this year. Losing both would, uh, would very much be um, kind of a downer and a, a rough situation in October for Tennessee if they're staring down the barrel of those two. I think A and M is way more likely to win. To me, not, not even close. Not even close. I feel good about Tennessee's out chances at Alabama. Still, I mean, I think it'll be a close game, or you know, it could be a competitive game. But Tennessee has laid an egg. Three their last three game road games in big environments, they've completely laid an egg. And Cooper Mays being back is helpful. But again, Tennessee does not have a quarterback that inspires a ton of confidence and. It just goes back to my point that I make all the time off line of scrimmage and quarterback play. And Tennessee, I don't think it's going to be way worse than Alabama on the line of scrimmage, but I do think they will be worse on the line of scrimmage. And uh, obviously, Alabama's quarterback play has not been great either this season, but I don't think Tennessee, Joe Milton's not going to be able to lift Tennessee above a bad offensive line performance that game. I guess it goes back to your point. He's not losing Tennessee games right now, but he's also not making a ton of plays that are going to win Tennessee games. So, uh, to me, I definitely think AM is way more winnable at home coming off a of bye week. And I would say, just kind of going back to your point earlier, I would agree that 9-3 and three is the most likely, likely outcome for Tennessee right now. But I do think 8-4 and four is not super far behind in the 
whatever percentage chances. And I definitely think there's a better chance that Tennessee loses both of their next two games and wins both their next two games. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, I, I have it hard to, I, it's hard for me to see a sweep of AM, Bama, and Georgia uh, the rest of the way for, for Tennessee, especially because they get two of the Really? Next, well, they get two of those three at home. Like, they get them both at home, and I just think Tennessee's a much better team at home. I think it would shock me if they don't go one and two in this in this pod here. But I would also say, if you ask me today, we're recording this on a Sunday evening, Ryan Shepard. My gut says Alabama is more winnable than AM. AM is playing some really good ball. AM, I think, is better than Alabama right now. Uh, I don't know if, I think if you gave some true serum to Nick Saban at the moment, he would probably agree with that. We'll also know because AM gets Bama at home this upcoming week. And we know what happened with Bama at AM two two years ago with Zach Calzada in the backup quarterback for the Aggies. Yeah. I think AM's going to win that game again. And if AM wins that game, you're coming into Nealon with all kinds of momentum um, with the season very much. You're in the driver's seat to win the West uh, with LSU fumbling the bag to LSU, uh, to Old Miss over the weekend. So I just think that the AM game scares me in a multitude of levels uh, for Tennessee. So I actually think that's less winnable than App Bama, where the offense is still going to be kind of a mess. You're seeing it week in, week out. I just, I'm not fearful of this Alabama team and Tommy Reese and company on that side of the ball. I think Miller will have some problems with Tennessee's defense. I think Tennessee should play really well in Tuscaloosa. They played really well two years ago there and had that be a game in the fourth quarter with Bryce Young and company. Obviously the Tennessee offense was better as a whole, but I don't know. I think that's going to be a low scoring kind of both teams are going to try and run the other team into submission type deal. So I think my gut tells me Bama Tennessee will be very, very close until the end. I could see AM actually causing some real problems for, for Hypel and the staff. And I think not like they get blown out at home, but I think it gets away from him in the second half and AM uh just ultimately beats Tennessee. That's where I'm set I'm not officially putting it on the record, but as of Sunday, October first, I'm leaning more likely towards a Bama win than a AM win. I just don't see I think where our disconnect is, I just don't see this. Texas A&M offense being that much better than Alabama's. That's where I mm. feel like you're at. Everything you just said about Alabama's offensive issues, I feel the exact same way about Texas A&M. They've been less erratic, mm. uh, I would say that, but they're still far from perfect offensively or far from explosive offensively. So, uh, And then to me, just going back to the whole thing as a whole, and it's those three games are the teams that will really challenge Tennessee. I think Tennessee's offense is in – a similar spot to where they were two years ago, probably better, but in the fact where I think against this SEC middle class, Tennessee can run it down and just about anybody's throats. When they play the big boys, I'm not sure how well they can run it. My instinct tells me they can definitely run it better than they did two years ago in those games, but I still don't know. I'm skeptical or hesitant to think they can run the ball enough to, you know, make life easy enough on Joe Milton uh, and not ask Joe Milton to do too much to win those games. So, and that's kind of where I'm at uh, with my concern for Tennessee's offense in those three games. Yeah, I mean, they're 78 ninth in yards per attempt through the air. I mean, it. this is, it's just kind of wild to look at some of the passing stats for Tennessee through five games and what it's been like the first couple of years versus what we're looking at. Um, Brady Cook, though, 10 point something yards per attempt. They're in the top three. They're throwing the ball downfield. At Mizzou is the one I've circled of like the, I'm not saying I'm in panic mode, but that's the one where I hope 
with every fiber of my being, that is not a night game in Columbia. That is, I want no part of that being a night game in Columbia. Like Kentucky play whenever. Doesn't matter. They're getting the dub. But at Mizzou, it better be a nooner. Better be an 11 a.m. Central kick for me to feel good about that game. Chase, this is why I love you. No less than 20 minutes ago, you go, Missouri doesn't worry me as much as it does it does other people. <laughs> and now it's – but I, I agree. I agree with your, your new sentiment uh, or your slightly, your slightly altered uh, sentiment on. that Hold this on. is a harder game. Hold on. Didn't say I, I was – I'm saying the time matters. Ryan Shepard, the time of kickoff matters a significant amount here. We're on t- we're on time of kickoff watch, and then yes. we're monitoring the worried situation. Yes. Okay. All right. Fair, like, fair I enough. will be worried about Mizzou if it's announced that it's at seven o'clock on SEC Network. That's when yeah. I'm like, oh, they're losing this game. Like, I will go ahead. That and has say, all the makings of a seven o'clock SEC Network game. Guess what, folks? Tennessee's losing at seven o'clock on SEC Network at Mizzou. They get a nooner, 11 a.m. Central kick. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. Want no part first? of that. Like I said, though, Kentucky, play it at night, 7 a.m., 9.30. Josh Heupel's not losing to, to Stoops um, at that point. Uh, Ryan Shepard, there you go. Bye week coming up. Uh, what can the good folks check out from you and the team over at Rocky Top Insider this week? Bad tons of stuff recapping the South Carolina game, and obviously we'll have Plenty of Tennessee football coverage, but uh, Tennessee basketball in-house media days this week and some practice observation or practice availability for the media. So uh, we'll have some Tennessee basketball stuff, too, as we chug along, I guess, about five, five weeks in one day from the season opener. So uh, getting closer and closer and we'll have more and more coverage there and maybe some Tennessee baseball stuff, too, it was over. At Lindsey Nelson Stadium on Thursday for the first uh, scrimmage they had of the fall, Cannon Peebles. Uh, Billy Amick both went deep as uh, Tennessee's two highly touted transfers uh, get off to a nice start in the fall. So we'll probably have a little bit of Tennessee baseball coverage as well. There you go. Ryan Shumpert, always a pleasure. I'll talk to you next week. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker, or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Chase, I think I'm going to hear more about you. I really do. I think you've got a way about you, but you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. You're, um, pleasantness you're smart so i think i'm going to hear big things about you nicely done nephew chase thomas podcast hell yeah Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 